Um, in the 1800s, they couldn't discover and identify exactly how malaria was being spread. But millions and millions of people were dropping dead at the hands of something that was seemingly invisible, something that was seemingly unidentifiable, something that escaped the naked eye, but nevertheless was spreading malaria like crazy. One historian writes, they had been trying to fight the disease for a long time, but it all seemed so hopeless. As fast as you helped one patient, there were three other patients who contracted the disease. But then in the late 1800s came a breakthrough. Sir Ronald Ross was the first person to demonstrate in 1878 that a parasite that causes the human disease could also infect, of all creatures you can imagine, could also infect a mosquito, which at the time seemed like a long shot. But nevertheless, in 1897, Sir Ronald Ross went on to make his landmark discovery. While dissecting the stomach tissue of a mosquito, he ended up discovering the malaria parasite and went on to prove the key role in mosquitoes in the spread of the parasites from human beings to human beings. And after his discovery, Sir Ronald Ross wrote this little poem about the mosquito. He said, With tears and toiling breath, I have found thy cunning seeds, O million murdering death. After identifying the enemy, well, you can imagine everything that changed in the late 1800s. New kinds of netting could be developed so that people could sleep without being attacked by mosquitoes. On top of that, swamps could be drained where mosquitoes were rapidly breeding. But the end, this is all to say that there was an actual battle plan that could be developed after identifying the enemy. Now here's the point. The Bible will do for us this morning what Ronald Ross did for science in the late 1800s. It will identify for us our enemy. And the enemy is identified by Peter in 1 Peter as something more invisible, more deadly, and more difficult to identify than simply mosquitoes. The enemy is identified as the devil. So um, let me do a quick note, and then we'll jump into our text this morning. One of my favorite biblical scholars, he, he wrote this. He said in an interview, quite frankly, I don't like talking about Satan, because when you do, you seem to put yourself in a quite dangerous place. So here's my, here's my introductory note for you guys. Believe the gospel, okay? Believe the gospel of Jesus. If you believe and root and know the gospel, then you know that all of your sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. You know that your destiny is firmly and securely rooted in Jesus Christ. And knowing and believing and standing firm in the gospel this morning will encourage you and empower you to think critically about the enemy without being paralyzed by anxiety. The gospel will empower you to think strategically about how to engage spiritual warfare against the enemy, and you, perhaps by the end of the sermon, will be able to stand next to Jesus Christ and say, with tears and toiling breath, I have found thy cunning seeds, O million murdering death. Or, if you prefer it this way, I had a, a buddy in college who was on my, my floor in our dorm room, and on his ten toes, he had these words tattooed. Satan sucks. Amen? That's pretty much the entire sermon there. Uh, but let's stand for the reading of God's word. 
Some of you are counting in your heads, right? You're like, 10 toes. Is that really 10 letters? I'll save you the work. It is. <laughs> Peter writes these Christians who are dispersed throughout this area in Rome. He, he writes these words. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because church, he cares for you. But God's care for you doesn't mean that we get to just be careless. Instead, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You can have a seat, church. Um, so, as I mentioned there, uh, earlier, this is our last sermon in our First Peter sermon series, and we just read verses six through fourteen together, which is a total of nine verses. Um, but I'm really what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to really, really, really shrink our focus down to four verses this morning, verses eight through eleven. And this is not generally what I do, um, but the reason is really simple. Um, this week, as I've been praying for our church and thinking about the text and God's heart for our church, I. I feel, not that we're perfect in these areas, but I do feel pretty good and pretty solid about our church's grasp on a lot of these key verses, about humility, for instance, and our knowledge of God's care. And there are definitely some cool details towards the end of this, uh, towards the end of this letter. For instance, there's the name of Silvanus as a helper to Peter, which might explain how a first century Jew like Peter could write a letter in fluent, mature Greek. That's a cool detail. On top of that, Peter uses the location Babylon metaphorically. Babylon was a wicked city opposed to the Old Testament church. And Peter's kind of including the New Testament church in the Old Testament church's story by saying that these Christians in Asia Minor, this part of Rome, it's like they're in Babylon with God's people again. Now, all of that stuff is really important, but I'm shrinking our focus down to verses 8 through 11 because I think that as a young church, I think that our theology of the devil, of the adversary, of Satan is underdeveloped right now. So we're zooming in together on those verses. Let me just read verses 8 through 11 aloud for you once more. This is how Peter describes them. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you because to him be the dominion forever and ever. So strangely enough, one of the first things I think that we should note about the devil this morning in our text is that Peter refers to the enemy as a, you probably caught this, as a lion. But in Genesis... The enemy is referred to as a serpent who deceives. And in Revelation, he's described as a dragon who's enraged. And it's not that all these biblical writers are at odds or in conflict with one another about what they see when they see the enemy and then write about him. It's that the enemy is nameless and slimeless and formless and he seeps into many places and he requires many different metaphors to nail down in a description. He's the Satan. He's like a lion, he's like a serpent, he's like a dragon. Here, he's referred to as the devil, elsewhere as the adversary, and in some places he's referred to as the Satan. And you should actually know, uh, by the way, that the word Satan, before we translated it into our native tongue, English, was Hasatan. And the reason that's important is because in the original language, uh, it actually has a definitive article in front of it. It's not a name, it's a title. Hasatan, or the Satan. And that definitive article, it might not sound that important, but it's actually how we generally see the enemy referred to throughout the scriptures. For instance, it sounds like this in the Bible all throughout. He is the Satan. He is the adversary. He is the deceiver. All throughout the scriptures. So it's not that surprising when you bump into it. He is the enemy of Adam and Eve. He is the enemy of Job. He is the enemy of the church. Nothing surprising yet. He is the slanderer. He is the father of lies all throughout the scriptures. He is the this. He is the that. He is the accuser. He is the slanderer. And Peter brings it in this morning and says, he is your adversary. You feel the difference there? He's not, he, Satan doesn't just exist out there in academic land with definitive articles. He's the enemy. He's the slanderer. He's your enemy. Peter wants you to see how intimately, deeply personal this warfare is. But one of the second things worth noting in our text this morning is that Peter, he doesn't actually have an unhealthy, obsessive fascination with the devil like some Christians do. I feel like that's worth noting. And we know this because Peter has been talking about suffering all throughout the scriptures and all throughout this letter, and he doesn't even mention the devil until the fifth and final chapter of his letter. This is the, this is the last chapter, and he finally references the devil. It should be clear that this, 1 Peter, this is not a letter about the enemy. This is a letter about the Christ. So we should have a, a healthy awareness, and neither is Peter naive to the enemy. Peter knows that the mission of God is not the only mission in the world. He knows that there's this second mission as well, the mission of Satan. He knows that it's not just the church who has a philosophy of ministry and a strategy to accomplish things in the world. Satan also has a philosophy of ministry and wants to accomplish things within the world. Um, so we might just ask the question, what is it? What is the philosophy of ministry of the Satan, Hasatan? What is his strategy? And the devil's philosophy of ministry, his mission is to devour believers. That's a scary word. Did you guys notice it when we read it? 
devour. It's a word that's worth circling because the word devour here is, it's actually the same word for how the whale swallows Jonah in the Old Testament. What Peter's doing through his diction, through his word choices, he's alerting these Christians to the fact that the enemy is not going to take his time setting the table and arranging the silverware before eating you. He's alerting these Christians that the devil is not in the business of keeping with the National Health Center's suggestion to chew 15 times before swallowing. He's not satisfied with a bit of you. He's not satisfied with a piece of you. He wants to swallow you whole. This is consistent all throughout the scriptures, church. If we take a moment to paint a biblical portrait of the enemy, you'll notice that he's the enemy of the whole person of God, the whole image of God. For instance, Satan is first and foremost the enemy of the mind. Jesus in the New Testament actually calls Satan the father of lies. And so the enemy is, you might think of him as an artisan of ideas which do not correspond to reality. He's an artisan or a master craftsman of, of lies. One pastor refers to Satan's philosophy of ministry as a disinformation campaign. A disinformation campaign. God, God is not this. God's not that. He isn't who he said he is. He's not who he's revealed himself. Did God say that to you? What is a God? What is God? A disinformation campaign, which is why the church is largely conceptualized in the New Testament as a truth campaign. Maybe you even notice this throughout Peter's letter. Throughout Peter's letter, most of his instructions are against sins of the tongue and mind. Don't gossip, don't slander, don't lie, don't talk that way, because Peter doesn't want the mission of the church to, to, um, to unwittingly collaborate with the mission of the enemy. So he is the enemy of the mind. Don't don't misunderstand me, but he's more than that. He's also the enemy of the heart. In fact, in the book of Acts, Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Satan does not merely want to dis disinfect you. He doesn't merely want to infect you with lies of the brain and lies of thinking. He also wants to create in you little disordered desires of the heart that do not love God and God's ways. He can fill your heart, as Peter says in Acts. And on top of that, he is also the enemy of the body. He's the enemy of the mind. He's the enemy of the heart. He's the enemy of the body. In the book of Job, Satan is responsible for a great wind that strikes the house and kills Job's sons and daughters. So here's the portrait of Satan that the Bible paints, enemy of the mind, enemy of the heart, enemy of the body. In some, the enemy hates God, and so he hates the whole image of God that he sees in you, and that's why we are called to resist him. That's the command. Resist the devil. But there's also a promise in the text. And I want us to see the promise of the text. In verses 10 through 11, here's what Peter says. After you have suffered a little while, after you have resisted the enemy for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Quite simply, Peter's saying, it's going to take enemy, or it's going to take energy to resist the enemy. 
It's, it's going to take energy, and you guys know this. There are these sinful thought patterns in some of our lives, envy, lust, hatred, pessimism, that have built such strong neural pathways in our brains that our neurons basically ice skate across these neural pathways to create harmful thoughts. And sometimes thinking a single, holy, sanctified thought feels like your neurons are shoveling snow to make a new neural pathway. It's going to take intellectual energy. On top of that, um, some of us might experience a few sleepless nights resisting the enemy. There might even be some Christians whose job has positioned them in close proximity with somebody that they shouldn't be close to, and resisting the enemy might mean taking a financial hit. So don't miss the promise here. The promise is whatever you lose, whatever is lost in the warfare against the enemy will be restored by God. In other words, Christ will be to you like heavenly electrolytes. He will replenish your soul. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's why Peter begins this paragraph by saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will exalt you. He'll exalt you. In this lifetime? Maybe. In the next lifetime? Definitely. Because the emphasis in this text is about this happening in eternal glory. Did you guys catch that? He says, the God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we're going to go deep into what it means that in eternal glory with Christ, you will be reestablished. And it begins by understanding that the enemy has de-established the world. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. God created mankind in his image to rule over the world. This is the way that Genesis says it. And God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and rule over every animal on the earth. But you guys know that in the book of Genesis, there was one animal in the garden who didn't want to be ruled over, right? The serpent. A meddler, an ornery, celestial, powerful, spiritual being who was envious of the glory that was given to human beings to rule over the created world so that the enemy was turned hell-bent on de-establishing God's good created order. So the serpent came after Adam and Eve, not with a club, as one scholar notes, not with a stick, not with a bat, but with an idea. It slithered up to Eve, pointed at an apple with its forked tongue and issued forth a false idea. Did, did, God, did God really say you can't have that? Did he really? Look at that shiny apple. Did he really say that that's going to kill you? And with one spiritual transfer of trust from the God of the Bible to the serpent, the world was de-established from its good created order to an inverted order. Genesis 3 goes on to say that childbearing has become painful as a result of it. The natural world, the good created world, now bears thorns and thistles when you try to work on it. It's turned against you. And the Satan is referred to in the scriptures as the ruler of this world and even the God of this world. Not how it's supposed to be, right? But this isn't the end of the story. Something else 
happened in time and space and history. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth. And the Peter who wrote 1 Peter walked with him and lived with him and prayed with him and laughed with him and, and did all of these things with him. And in Matthew 16, Peter actually heard Jesus declare warfare against the enemy. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. An amazing promise at an amazing location, right next to a famous mountain in the ancient world that ancient readers would have been really, really, really familiar with, but you might miss it as a modern reader. It's Mount Hermon. It's a mountain that was referred to as the place of the serpent in the ancient world, and the very next event in Jesus' life would be the transfiguration, when Jesus would ascend to, quote, a high mountain, probably Mount Hermon, the place of the serpent. And what Jesus does in in, in this event, in the transfiguration, is he becomes radiant and he glows on top of that mountain in the presence of Peter on the place of the serpent. One scholar says it this way, the transfiguration, he says, the meaning of the transfiguration ought to be apparent. Jesus is declaring on the place of the serpent, I'm putting the hostile powers of the enemy on notice. So in other words, the transfiguration is almost like Jesus Christ's UFC press conference. He's saying, that's what's up. He's saying, you want, you want some? You want to come get some? That's what he's doing. The scholar goes on to say, I'm putting the hostile powers of the enemy on notice. Your time is up. Your time ruling this world is up. And even though the enemy knows who Jesus is, the enemy does not know the plan of Jesus Christ. And so in the transfiguration, by alerting the serpent to his presence through glowing and radiating, Jesus has baited the enemy into action and act the enemy will. Jesus has given the enemy the rope and the enemy will eagerly, unwittingly hang himself with it. Jesus will go willingly to the cross and the instrument of death will be the catalyst that launches the kingdom of God into full force. On the cross, Jesus Christ is crucified and the gates of hell are swung wide open and Jesus Christ willingly descends into the dead. And in the place of the dead, within the gates of hell, the enemy finds himself face to face with his worst enemy, Jesus Christ, in his own field, on his own turf, in his own octagon. And Jesus Christ goes forward to destroy the enemy, to devastate the enemy, to demolish the enemy. Christ destroys him. And so though the enemy is still alive, as Peter makes clear, all of his efforts against you are mere Death shudders. They are real. They're, they're real strategies to devour you, but they are just death rattles. The gospel is the good news that God has defeated the enemy and he has begun the process of reestablishing you as a co-heir and a co-ruler of Jesus Christ to once again rule over creation as you were supposed to. And so in the eternal glory to come, church, in the resurrection, you will rise up and you will pronounce judgment on the enemy. How amazing is that? All of the enemies of Satan will rise up in the resurrection and they will pronounce judgment over Satan. The little fetal bodies of aborted babies will rise up with Christ in glorious, beautiful resurrection bodies and they will put the enemy underneath their feet. 
And those of you who struggle with chronic pain, you will shed that pain in the resurrection and you will join Christ in hurling the devil into the lake of fire and you will say with Christ, how do you like them apples, Satan? Does this sound good? A co-heir and a co-ruler being reestablished with Jesus Christ so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you will judge angels? Guilty, Satan. You will judge angels. Psalm 8, you have crowned man with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. Listen to this. This is, this is Ephesians 1. What is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule, far above power, far above dominion, far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him as head over all things to the church, us. Wow. So it's important for us to know this because this is the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news. Well, the gospel is not the good news that if you resist the enemy, you can defeat the enemy. That's not the good news. The gospel is the good news that because Jesus Christ defeated the enemy, you can now resist the enemy. Got to get that order. That order is huge. So it's important for you to know it because of that reason. But it's also important for us to know this huge meta-narrative of Christ and the enemy. Because if you don't get all of this, Peter's instructions to engage in spiritual warfare seem kind of underwhelming. You know, if you don't get all of this, then Peter's instructions to engage in spiritual warfare can seem kind of lame. Right? There's no physical strategy. There's no mystical strategy. Peter's not going to say, resist the enemy by elbow dropping him or resist the enemy by putting him in a chokehold or anything like that. There's actually no room in Peter's instructions for any type of messianic arrogance of, let's go get him. There's one strategy that Peter gives us, and it's really the only strategy, faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. And if, if that seems underwhelming to any of you, let me just kind of plead with you for a second. Trust Peter. Trust Peter's instructions this morning. Because if anybody knows how to defeat the enemy, it's the Peter who wrote 1 Peter, who's the Peter who walked with Jesus, saw Jesus declare war on the enemy, and saw Jesus defeat the enemy. So trust Peter's instructions this morning to stand firm in the faith. So let me just end this morning with a few notes on resisting the enemy by standing firm in your faith. I have three. First, in spiritual warfare, a proper knowledge of Satan will actually enable you to love your enemies better. So it's actually worth noting that in our postmodern culture where a belief in the existence of Satan and God has been on the decline, we haven't actually experienced a decline of evil in the world, have we? Not at all. In fact, the 20th century is horribly sad, but really great evidence that in the absence of a belief in God and Satan, all that happens is that you take the place of God and your enemies take the place of Satan. 
right? It's not, like, it's not like you can simply shed a belief in the existence of Satan and go on as some enlightened individual. That's not how it works. You just fill in the blanks a little bit differently. You just kind of shift who you believe God is. You believe it's you. You just kind of shift who you think the enemy is. Then, then the enemy becomes some type of people group that you don't like, right? It's the conservatives. It's the liberals. It's the Jews, or it's this or that people group. What happens without a proper knowledge of Satan is that we stop engaging in spiritual warfare and we just end up committing terrible atrocities to human beings. The 20th century, of course, is proof of this. But Christians don't do this. And it's because we have a healthy understanding of who the real enemy is, and it's Satan, which actually enables and empowers us to love our enemies. We wage war not against flesh and blood, as Paul says, but against the powers and principalities. Note number two, in spiritual warfare, not all evil activity is the result of Satan. Some of it is your own sinfulness and stupidity, right? We should never blame this spiritual celestial enemy for our sin in some type of weird attempt to juke or take responsibility for our own sin. You don't get to blame Satan for being a jerk at, at work to your boss. You just need to repent in those circumstances. Thirdly and lastly, in spiritual warfare, you will lose the battle if you try to win the battle by thinking more about the enemy than the Christ. Let me say that again. In spiritual warfare, you will lose the battle if you try to win the battle by thinking more about the enemy than the Christ. You might think of this relationally for a second. Men, if you are tempted towards lust for a woman who isn't your wife, the way to win that battle is not to fixate all of your attention on your lust. Oh man, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't think that way about her. I shouldn't feel that way about her. I shouldn't think that way about her body. That's actually the problem, not the solution. And so the way to win that battle is to fixate your attention on your wife her facial features, her physical appearance, the things about her personality that you love, the things about her spirit that you love. Likewise, we don't resist the devil by obsessively fixating our attention on him. We resist the devil by obsessively fixating our attention on Christ. Actually, let me just give you this in closing. Here's one way of saying it. For every, in spiritual warfare, for every one look you take at the enemy, be sure to take 10 looks at the Christ, okay? That's all I got this morning, so let's pray.